And as the kids are dismissed, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 13 through 25 this morning. Somebody laughed. I heard you. It's happening. Believe, Believe right? You've got enough faith. <clears throat> I was... Uh, I was sitting there doing that song, and uh, it's just amazing how the Holy Spirit just kind of puts things together that we need in our hearts for the day. And, and, you know, sometimes people have everything all programmed out, you know, hey, this is what we're doing, play these 15 songs, you know, and we're going to orchestrate what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And I just, it's just sweet, the songs that were, were chosen, the ones we sung to the Lord, they're just exactly where we are, and I think what the Lord put on my heart, and, and just, Lord, I just want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for you just governing your church, Lord, with wisdom and with power, God, from on high. And so we invite you here this morning to be with us, Lord, to draw us into your beautiful presence, to speak to the heart of your bride, that we would hear your voice on the top of the hill and in the depths of the valley, God. That we would know without a doubt that you are ours and we're yours and that you're going to come to get us soon. And so we long for you, Lord. And so speak into the hearts of your church. We're listening, Lord. Give us ears to hear in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter up to this point has been focusing on a magnificent salvation that we have received from God. And because of his great mercy that God has given us, Peter, as he's building all this up, he says in verse 13, Therefore, because of this great mercy, because of the salvation, because of who you are in Christ, because of all he's done, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I was at a pastor's conference this past week, and uh, the Holy Spirit really spoke through the brothers that were speaking, and the common theme uh, among many, but the common theme was the return of Jesus Christ, the anticipation of, of ministering in the expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ. And it was really convicting uh, because once I was Again, I, I was asking myself, uh, if the Lord were to come back today, would I be expecting him? Would he find me busy about his business? Would my heart and my priorities be in anticipation in light of his soon return? And it was funny because I left the conference on Monday. Uh, I'm sorry, I left for the conference on Monday, and I said I'd be back Wednesday afternoon, and, and uh, it ended up we didn't eat how many of you were at the men's retreat and the women's retreat this past? Yeah, how many of you didn't eat for like five days after that? Yeah, it's just like, I don't know, gluttony, and how does this work out, God? Anyways, um, yeah. So anyways, I, we skipped lunch, and we just came home early. And, and when I got home, um, Ruthie was, was at, the, at the window, and John was in there, and, and Ruthie, I could, you know, she just runs to the door, and you hear, you know, just her feet run into the door, and I'm there, and she opens it, and there's just a squeal, and she gives me a giant hug. She's like, you know, she squeezes me like I'm a cat or something. She's all, you know, she just is so happy. But it, 
You know, that's the expectancy, just the desire that we're to have for the return of our Lord. That at any moment he could pull up in the driveway of our life. That at any moment he could be there and we just are, whoa, I yes, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been anticipating you coming home to get me. And as a dad, I love that. And the Lord loves that in the hearts of his children. And he anticipates that, or he expects that within us. In Luke 12, verses 35 through 40, it says, Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants awaiting their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Verse 37, underline this one, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak or in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon, or on a Sunday morning. I'm not sure if you caught that, but if the Lord finds you, His servants, ready and waiting, anticipating His return, what does it say He's going to do? It says that He Himself is going to serve you, and you're going to recline at His table while the King serves you. What is that? What grace is that? I don't get our Lord. I don't get our God. Yes, we will absolutely bow down before Him and worship Him. But this is our King. This is our Jesus. The first thing we will experience, I believe, at the wedding supper of the Lamb is Him serving us. I don't even get that. How beautiful is that? And I think this goes back to the few verses before. It says that, as you endure trials, as you focus on the Lord, as you, as you love Him, as you expect Him, He it says it's going to result in the praise and glory and honor from the Lord for us. It never diminishes our worship of Him. It, obviously, that's going to be happening throughout all eternity, but that is just fascinating to me. But that's where a believer is longing for, waiting for those rewards, waiting for that promotion as it says that he will put him in charge of all that he has. And if you continue on reading, like in verse 39 of Luke uh, chapter 12, it says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Obviously, if someone's going to break into your house, and so this is a common analogy Jesus uses for his return. He's saying, I'm going to be like a thief in the night. When does a thief in the light co night come? In the night. What happens at night? You sleep. And the idea is that he's coming at a time when you're not going to be ready. The world won't be ready, but we will. Hopefully, right? That's what he's saying here. If the owner had known when he was coming, he would have not let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, verse 40, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. And if you keep reading, uh, you see Jesus is very serious about this with us as his followers. He says in verse 45, it says, But suppose then the servant says to himself, My master has taken a long time in coming. How many of you have kind of once were excited about the return of Jesus Christ? 
I think like we all are when we first come to the Lord, when we're first born again, we, we hear the precious promises of Jesus. He's coming back, and then guess what? He doesn't come back. And then you find that people who are excited about the return of Jesus, they've gone ahead and, and, and died and gone on to be with the Lord, and so you're kind of like, you know what? Everything is as it was. And we've taken our eyes, so to speak, off of the return of Jesus Christ, and we go, well, it looks like I'm in here for the long haul. Well, this is but so supposed to his servant said to himself, my master's taken a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. And verse 46, the master of that servant will come in a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware, he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So that's very serious. I believe that's speaking about unbelievers because I think believers are going to be focused on the return of Jesus Christ. I think the Holy Spirit's going to be constantly prompting us on that. And I think that's what the, what the expectation of the apostles was, that he was going to return at any moment. And they lived in light of that. It was a purifying effect upon their lives and their hearts and, and what they were all to be about and what they were doing with their time and their talents and their treasures and where they were going and how they were planning stuff. It was all in light of the Lord could come back at any moment. What If he were to appear, what is... What would I be doing? What should I be about? What should my preoccupation be about? What should my marriage look like? What should my relationships look like? What should, what should my time look like? What, what, you know, I'm just saying, it's a purifying effect on our lives. And this is where Peter's coming from. He was there when Jesus was speaking all these things. We find that from Matthew's account. This is why Peter says back in Verse 13 to 1 Peter says, With minds that are alert and fully what? Fully sober. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The ap- apocalypse is that word revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, what does that look like? What does it look like to live in anticipation of the Lord's return? What does that look like? Verse 14 As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's a couple operative words in there. Obedience and holiness. Peter is speaking about our relationship to our Heavenly Father as we are his children. And as God's children, we are called to obedience and to holiness. How many of you are like, that's on my top five to do this week? I'm focused on obedience and holiness. No, but that's on God's top five for us. How many of you are parents? How many of you are just totally excited when your children are disobedient and unholy? What are you longing for in the lives of your kids? Obedience and holiness. Those two things, let me explain further. God is holy, and we know that. But obedience is really what the first marker is here. Christine and I have spent the last 16 years praying for, modeling, and teaching uh, John and Ruth to be obedient and holy to us, first of all, so that they will be obedient and holy to whom? to God, because it's ultimately not our authority. We're just a temporary place marker for their relationship with God. And by the way, that also flows into every other institution in life. 
every other thing of government. You know, your boss. You want to be, be obedient to them? You want to be holy. How about the government? You want to be obedient? You want to be holy? All those types of things. Your life goes well. Obey your parents. You'll have a long life. You get the commandment. But as a parent, you are constantly training your child to hear your voice and to obey your voice over their own desires, right? That is constantly what and you, you're just doing that. That's, that's, just, that's parenting. And, and the way that we do this is through love and discipline. Love and discipline. That's just kind of how it is. And people say, well, if you discipline someone, you don't love them. No, if you don't discipline them, you don't love them. That's, that's Bible 101 there. But that's, how, that's what the Lord does with us. He loves and disciplines us. And, and that's what the Lord desires for us, that we would become obedient to his voice. We wouldn't become disobedient children. We wouldn't be unholy children. We wouldn't be these kids who just don't listen to their parents. Now, of course, that's a growing process. You have to teach that. You have to learn that. Amen? We aren't just born obedient. That's training. And that takes a while. And so we're learning how to obey. We're learning. That's why the New Testament was written. Have you noticed that as you read the New Testament, it's not telling you how wonderful you are all the time? That's why people don't read it. No, but it's, it's mostly letters of correction and exhortation and encouragement. In other words, the Great Commission is to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to what? Obey. That's because we don't what? obey. <laughs> that's just totally our nature to disobey. That's, that's, so the Lord comes into our hearts, and now he wants to teach us how to obey him. He desires that for us, that we become obedient to his voice, he'd, um, that his, uh, be, be obedient to his voice and, his, and recognize his Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts and not be slaves to our own lusts, which is the word for evil desires there in verse 14. <clears throat> we are, Ephesians chapter 2, um, first verse, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were slaves to our lusts, our evil desires, the things that are contrary to the will of God. But then we've had great mercy and we're born again and now we have a spirit and now we're learning how to follow and listen to the voice of God. Paul speaks about our old life and our new life. He speaks about our new lives under grace, and he uses the imagery of slavery, because everybody in that, and this is Romans chapter 6, by the way, he, he uses this imagery of, of slavery. Now we go, oh my gosh, why are you using slavery? That was just common practice back then. Everybody was enslaved by the Romans one way or the other. And by the way, that's, that's how people got work. You gave up your, your life and your rights and you would go live on someone's property and they would be able to take care of you and provide protection for you and your family. And you just do whatever they said. Otherwise, you're on your own and you're starving, you're dying. There, that was, there was really no welfare system to speak of. But Romans 6 speaks about our new lives under grace. And he uses that imagery of slavery to illustrate how our lives were before Christ and how our lives are after Christ. Let me read it for you. Romans 6, 15 through 23 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one you obey. They would have offered themselves as obedient slaves to people. He says, you are, uh, you are the slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, 
which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So there's two paths of slavery. There's the path of sin, which leads to death, and there's the path of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But he says in verse 17 of Romans chapter 6, he says, But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart. Though you used to be slaves of sin, you've now come to obey from the heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have now been set free from sin, and you have become slaves of righteousness. Wow. And that's the crux of what Peter is saying. You were once slaves of sin, living uh, in ignorance, is what Peter calls it. Our old lives were ignorant lives in that we did not understand the holiness of God. We didn't understand the wrath that was awaiting us. And we also didn't understand the grace found in Jesus Christ. We were living in ignorance, basically. Not really understanding the fullness of it, but... Now, as children of God, you obey the Lord and you are slaves of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I was pretty messed up before I came to the Lord. How many of you pretty messed up before you came to the Lord? The answer is you were all messed up before you came to the Lord, and you're probably still pretty messed up. Amen? <laughs> Correct answer. And the things that I was enslaved to, the things that I was given over to, the things that I was in bondage to, I was totally debased. I was gone. I was given over. Some of you more than others. I don't know if you've, you've, you've had that, if you can think back in your life. I was a total slave. And it blew me away when I read this verse at the time as a new Christian. I'm going, wow, to the degree that I was a slave to all that is to the degree that God and more wants me to be a slave of righteousness. Isn't that crazy? The justice locked up and horrible and, and lost as I was there is now to the degree that I am totally enslaved to righteousness. And by the way, we're no longer slaves. What are we? We're sons. We're daughters. Praise the Lord. He didn't only buy us out of the slave market. He adopted us and made us his children. I love that. Thank you for your grace, Lord. And we are to be obedient children, obedient children, listening to our Father's voice. That's what it says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But verse 15 and 16, but just as he called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's a word that's repeated there a couple times. What word is it? Holy. Now, we are called to be obedient, but we're also called to holiness. It says in verse 15 that God is holy. Do you know that God is holy? When the scriptures speak of the holiness of God, it speaks of the otherness of God. That's kind of what the, what, what the idea is, that he is other. Um, he is set apart. God has never sinned, nor can he sin. He is absolute moral perfection. Uh, he, by his very nature, is holy. There is no a greater example of holiness, just as there is no greater example of love. Um, God is absolutely, totally, 100% holy. He is set apart. He is totally other than us. He has never experienced sin, never been tempted by sin. He is just absolute, 100% moral perfection. 
And Jesus illustrates his holiness as God in the flesh on the earth. And if by his great mercy we have been given new birth, and that's why it is great mercy, because he is absolutely holy and his holiness reached into the darkness of our lives. And if we, by his great mercy, have been born again of his spirit, then we are his children, his offspring. He's our dad, right? That's the picture here. And Peter's saying, because the holy God is your father and his spirit is now within you, mimic him. Mimic him. Act like your dad. As earthly fathers, we see this. Our, our, our kids mimic us. How many of you have your kids mimic you all the time? In the things that you don't want. Anyone else? Yes. <laughs> In attitudes and actions and all these types of things, you're like, boy, you're a little sinner, you know? And you're just like, yeah, where'd you learn that? Well, they've got their own natural inclination towards sin, no, no doubt, but they also learn a lot. It's, it's pretty bad, bad. But now that we have been part, that's our natural inclinations, right? Both good and bad. However, we have been born again by the Spirit, by an eternal seed within us. We, we are, our spirits have been made new. God is in us. He's in our DNA now. We need to uh, allow the Lord to rise up within us, so to speak, to grow, to, to come out. Let Jesus, let Jesus be. And the way we do that is we just submit to His Holy Spirit. We obey and that obedience produces holiness within us, or the other way around. I, I don't know how it all works. But you have a new nature. You have the Spirit of God within you. And as the Lord speaks through His Word, through His Spirit, we simply obey. We obey Him. When our Father speaks, and, and He begins to speak things that set us apart, that set us apart from who we used to be, that set us apart from the world and its way of thinking, that set us apart from sin and corruption and all these types of things. We begin to, over time, begin to mimic him if we allow him to, and we, become to, or we begin to think about life and actions and parenting and kids and politics and all this type of stuff more on the lines of the way that he thinks about the world and things. We become holy. We become separate from the world but towards God. This is your new nature. And Peter says to be holy in all that you do. That's a tall order. So it's, if you think about God, he's not like partly holy. He is what? Totally holy. And so we are to mimic him. Jesus said it in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You've got to be perfect. What does that mean? Complete, holy. And it, obviously it's a tall order. We can't do that in ourselves, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins this process of sanctification to make us more like God every single day, make us more like Christ as we are divine partakers of his nature. And Peter will get into that. I don't want to get into that yet. But if God is our example, God is, and God isn't partially holy, he is always holy in everything he does. He is moral perfection. That is our model. We too are to be holy. So in what areas of your life has God called you to be holy in? What's the answer? All. How many of you are instantly going, not that one, Lord? I mean, from football to taxes, to the way we interact with our family, to if you were in Southern California, I'd say the way you drive. 
be so nice around here. You know what I mean? To be holy. And we're learning this as children, what it means to be holy. And so the Holy Spirit is within us, and He's teaching us what it looks like. And if we desire to grow in our calling, how many of you desire to grow as a Christian? How many of you are tired of being where you are? Obey. (laughs) Hear the Lord's voice, obey, respond to Him. And even though it might hurt, respond to His voice and, and step out in holiness and obedience to God and you will begin to grow. Quite often, we don't hear from God because God told us something and we just decided we're not going to obey in that. Give us new orders, Lord. How does that work with your children? Go clean your room. You're going to wait until they clean the room before you give them any other things going on, right? God's not in a hurry. He's not freaking out. So, so what has the Lord told you to do? What has He given you in your heart? Obey him. So, the Lord is going to be leading you into holiness and setting you apart from the life of sin and pulling you closer into fellowship with him. I was speaking to someone last week. I can't even remember who it is. This is, you know, this is great because when you counsel with me, I instantly forget everything you told me or whatever it is. I don't know we're in counseling, but I just like... They're like, make sure, you know, this is confidential. I'm like, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just <laughs> very in the moment. Um, but I was speaking to someone, I really can't remember who, they were convicted by the Lord about to get rid of some of their older music. And it made me think of when I first came to the Lord, just of the, the total trash that I had had. I, you know, the, the music I was listening to, you know, Slayer and all this kind of stuff. I just was... Off the, off the charts, and just the Holy Spirit convicted me just to get rid of all that stuff. I'm not telling you that's what you got to do. But this person came to me and said, man, I just got to respond to the Lord in that, and I think they did. I think they gave up their, their music to the Lord, but those are difficult things, but that's something the Holy Spirit convicts you on. He says, you know what? There's no room for both of us. This has to go, and, and that's, and, and it's a separation. It's a separation from the world. And it's not, at the, at the same time, it's a drawing close to God. Do you see that? It's a separation from the world, but it's a drawing close to God. And so God calls us to that obedience and that holiness, responding to the Lord when he speaks. And so God calls us to put off the old life, not only just to put it off, because quite often we're just like moral police. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. How many of you feel like that sometimes Christianity can get in that way? But you do need to don't do this, right? Because it doesn't fit with your new life. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and and shares with you, this is who you are in Christ. That's why Peter spends all this time explaining who you are in Christ, what he's done on your behalf. First Peter is all about your great salvation, and it's out of all that, who you are in Christ. You're a child of God. You're chosen, all these types of things that then he moves into, now this is how you act. This is your response. And that's what he's doing. Peter's just moving there. So we're to be obedient. We're to be holy. And holiness is not only that separation from sin it's in our, and its attitudes and actions and objects, but holiness is drawing close to the Lord and putting on his attitudes, his actions, and enjoying his provision. And that's what Peter will be leading 
us to understand as we go on further. But verse 17, so we're called to obedience and holiness. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter's continued to speak about that relationship between a father and a child. How many of you have had really great relationships with your father? And, and, and that some of you haven't, I understand that. But there is something about a father that I think if you could sum up the relationship with a, with a father, there's two things that you have is love and respect. Uh, you, you love them, and, and, and there's this great joy that comes out, but you do not want to cross them. Amen? I mean, that maybe some of you. But those are the two things when you think about the Lord. Is, is, man, he's just so, his love is so profound. He's so good. I mean, his mercy is, is so great. His fellowship is so sweet. But he's also pretty scary. He is pretty scary, right? I mean, he's going to judge the world. And that's what Peter gets in. That we often forget that God is not only love, but he's also judge. And that's what Peter's reminding them. Remember that he is also the judge of the world. He's going to judge each person's work impartially. What does that mean? For the church, it means that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the church, will be judged. We will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 speaks to this as Paul is describing the work and the motives of, which he and others did. Why don't you flip over there for a second? 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. That's left. Or just click on 1 Corinthians 3. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul is describing the work and the motives in which he and others would be judged by. In verse 10, he says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on a foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. And if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be what? Saved, even though only one is escaping through the flames. What's he saying there? There's going to be a day when you stand before the king and he's going to judge how you lived and why you did and what you did and your motives behind it. And it will be a consuming fire and it will burn it. church. God is judge. He is your father, but he is also judge. Will it stand? You might be saved, but where's your reward? That's what he's talking about, your rewards. 
your reward is built on what lasts. It's going to be developed a little bit more. Flip over to 2 Corinthians. Flip right. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. There's more, by the way. I'm just doing two of them. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Paul speaks a lot there, but he says in verse 9, he says, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the what? The judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether what? Good or bad. This judgment seat here is not the great white throne judgment seat, I believe. I believe the, the word there is bema seat. It's called the mercy seat, the mercy seat of Christ. We must all appear before the mercy seat of Christ. You see, as Christians, who took the wrath? Jesus. If you don't have Christ, you don't have mercy. And you go to the white throne judgment where you will be judged and cast into everlasting darkness based upon what you have done in your life. The same word used for everlasting life is the same word used for everlasting punishment in Matthew. So the point here is that we will stand before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll be rewarded. It's the victor's reward. It's like the Olympics at the end. And you'll be given a reward based upon what you have done, how you have competed, how you've lived, all those things. And it is my desire and is the Lord's desire through scriptures that you would be a beautiful bride adorned, ready for her king. See, the whole picture here about Christ's return is a Jewish idiom. It's a Jewish picture. What happens is there is a betrothal process. In other words, the guy goes to a father, uh, you know, the, uh, the bride's house and says to the father, hey, I want to... I want to basically marry your daughter. And he goes, well, we've got to pay money. And so he gives him a bunch of money. He goes back and he builds a house. Well, he's going to come back at a certain time to get his bride, but she doesn't know when. And there's this anticipation in that waiting thing. And as we were at the retreat, they talked about this a little bit. But how would you like it if while you were away building all your stuff, your, your wife started, your future wife started cheating on you, started acting all, it was just acting unmarried. All these types of things. And, and you get there and you're like, hey, let's go back. You know, hey, you, you, you come in the thief of the night. You go ahead and take her at a time she doesn't expect. And it's supposed to be this really exciting romantic thing. And what happens is she's like, meh, I don't really, I'm not really excited about uh, all this whole thing. I'll be, I'll be over there in a little bit. You know, that attitude is, is there. And, and Paul's saying, listen, that's not the heart of, of who we are as Christians. We're going to have this anticipation, this joy, this awaiting our King. Do we love the Lord? Are, are our eyes on Him? Have, have we been changed by His mercy and His grace? Is that our preoccupation as the church? And I'm praying that as that day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, yes, there will be wood, hay, and stubble that gets burned away. We all got that stuff. But there would be so much, many things that weren't based upon whatever selfish motives we had, but were just done out of love for the Lord. Just a love for the Lord. Why are you doing what you do? Why do you serve your family? Why do you go to work? Why, do you, why are you here this morning? 
why do we sing to him? Why do we praise him? What's our motive for service? It's just a response to his mercy upon us. Build the rest of your lives on love. Love for the king and love for one another. You will not be disappointed. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And obviously from this passage we can see that a believer can live a life and yet on that day when it stands before the Lord their works can be found to be built with motives and attitudes that leave them without that reward but yet holding eternal life. I don't, don't do that. <laughs> Amen? So Peter says, since you're, you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners with reverent fear. This is how we're to live. Obedient, holy lives as foreigners in reverent fear. Foreigners is that this is not your home. Foreigners don't put down roots. That, in the idea of sojourners, not necessarily foreigners, but you're, you're, you're kind of just transient. This is not permanent. We're camping. Amen? We're camping. Foreigners, uh, you know, a verse that the Lord spoke to me as I was looking at all this, uh, you know, take heart, little flock. You know, the Lord cares for you. Sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. You know, one of those verses in there I was reading the other night. And it was just like, he was just speaking to his disciples like, don't worry about it. I've got you. Just give it away. Love people. Do what you need to do. It's not your responsibility. It's faith in the Lord. Listen to when he, when he calls. And as foreigners in reverent fear, we live in reverential fear of God who will judge the heavens and the earth. And not only will God judge the, the church, but he's going to judge the earth. And this is, this, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 5, 9-16. 2 Peter chapter 5, 9-16. You can flip over there, I guess. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 5, verses 9-16. All the way right in your Bible. Uh, second Peter, first Peter five, maybe. <laughs> this is what happens when I study late. I'm gonna flip right to Second Peter. I'm glad you guys found that. Oh yeah, seven three. Uh, no wait. What's going on here? Yeah, uh, sorry, three chapter uh, verses nine through sixteen. I apologize. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 through 16. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. This is the second letter, right, to the, to the church he's writing, uh, to these scattered people. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to what? Come to repentance. Why is it taking the Lord so long? How many of you have loved ones yet to know the Lord? Absolutely. I want the Lord to come back with anything, but I also want those people to know the Lord. I do. The Lord does too. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, that's just total annihilation. Everything laid bare, under, over, just all laid out for God to see, destroyed with fervent heat, all that kind of stuff. There's nothing hidden. 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a great question, Peter. And he answers his own question. You ought to live holy and godly lives, verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Don't know what that means. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's going to fit us. We're set apart now. We're obedient now. We're righteous now. God is, dwell, is working that within us. He's preparing us for what? Our home. We're sojourners. We're, we're foreigners here. Verse 14, so dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So we're to be foreigners. We're looking forward to his eternal home, living obedient, holy lives in response to the grace of God. How's it going for you? God is judge. He is holy. And I think there's always this tension between grace and judgment and all these types of things that we experience in Christ. It's a purifying effect on us. Back to 1 Peter verse 1 through 18. Let's go through these quickly. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The key word here is redemption. Redemption, you were redeemed from the empty way of life. The word redeems means to purchase a release of someone in bondage by paying a ransom. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God was going to send a destroying angel throughout Egypt to deliver that final um, judgment upon Egypt so they would release the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, from bondage. And what that final judgment, that final plague was, was that an destroying angel was going to come through and kill every firstborn child. And if those who, and so God made a provision, a way of escape, you had to uh, sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of your house so that when the destroying angel came through, if it saw the blood on the doorpost, it would pass over. That's where they get the Passover from. And that lamb couldn't be like your three-legged lamb with one eye. It was the firstborn. It was the best. It had no spot or no blemish. That's the one you had to, to, to give up. And it died so that you would live. And you see the picture here foreshadowing Christ, the Lamb of God, the firstborn Son, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for you, who died for me, that through faith in His sacrifice, His blood purchased our redemption out of bond, the bondage of sin. We got ejected out of Egypt through Christ's sacrifice. We were freed. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This morning, what can you give in exchange for your soul? If you took all the wealth that was in this room and you put it together and put it in a pile, it could never buy your soul. It doesn't work. You were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 speaks of this transaction that happened between God and us. It says, 
in verses in Hebrews 9:11-14 says but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands that is to say not a part of this creation in other words the the physical models of the tabernacle the priesthood and all those things were shadows of a reality that is in heaven that's why they had to be specifically done in a certain way. That's why God was so serious about how everything was done. Everybody's focused on the models, on the day, on the Sabbath, on the priesthood, all those things. They are all pictures. Hebrews un- unwraps all that for us. They are pictures of the reality of what went on, and that's what he's describing here. That Christ went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, earthly means, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. And there's so much there in Hebrews. In other words, the earthly tabernacle, the priesthood, the bulls and the goats, they were all shadows of the reality of the temple in heaven, the high priest of heaven, the Lamb of God. They all point to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Revelation, he is the temple. You just, I mean, you just, even the picture of the tabernacle is a picture of Christ, ugly on the outside, gold on the inside, rejected by humanity. The, the treasure in him is It's eternal. We're not redeemed by earthly means, but by eternal means, by the blood of Jesus Christ. His death gave us eternal life. Verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The verses should blow our minds. When did God plan the cross? When did God plan the cross? When when was Jesus chosen to redeem Mankind from their sins. Before the creation of the world. It has always been in God's heart, in God's mind to redeem mankind. I do not understand this. That's what it says. That's when he was chosen. How about you? Ephesians 1 through 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God has never not known you. I don't, I don't get all this, and obviously I'm getting into quantum theology here, but it's, it's amazing. When you believed in Christ, you found out that God had chosen you from all eternity in Christ. I don't understand how it all works together, but praise God. Verse 21, through him you believed in God. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. The way we believe in God is through the resurrection son, Jesus Christ. John, uh, Jesus said in John 6, 40, For my, father, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him in the last day. We believe in God through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Now that you have purified your souls by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply for the heart. And here we go. We're going for the jugular. Ready? Peter says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, that means now that you're born again, you've believed in the gospel, you've been purified. Now, what does it say to do? It says, 
You have this sincere love in your heart, now love one another deeply from the heart. You are to love one another deeply from the heart. Purifying result, church, of being born again is that we have a new nature. You have a holiness that is not yours. You have an obedience that is not yours. You have a love that is not yours. It has been given to you by your Father. And now it is yours. You partake in it, I guess. It will be manifested in sincere love for one another. And so Peter says, you're born again. His Spirit's in you. Now love one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The very thing that should mark every Christian is a deep love for God and a deep love for one another. Pretty cool, huh? That's what the world's longing for. Peter says we have a sincere love. The kind of love we have is sincere, meaning unhypocritical. The, The word love means agape. I love this definition someone gave. Check this out. The love... God has given us is that which is exercised by the will rather than the emotion. It's exercised by the will rather than the emotion. Not determined by the beauty or desirability of the object. Not determined by the beauty or the desirability of the object. But by the noble intention of the one who loves. That's the love God loved you with. It wasn't my outstanding good looks. It wasn't the outside. It wasn't even in the inside. It was just his good intention towards me that he loved me. And that's the love that we are to love one another with, that deep love. Peter says fervently. Some of your translations say fervently. We're almost there. The word means to stretch out to the furthest limits of a a muscle's ability. That's what that means. Fervently love one another. To stretch out to the point of almost breaking. Jesus' love was stretched out for you to where his arms came out of his sockets and his body was burning for you, for me. That's what that means. Think of an athlete extending themselves to the breaking point. This is the kind of love we are to love one another with, fervent love. And from the heart, Peter says, this means it isn't a legal love or external love. It's not a checkbox love. It's from the heart. And Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. And this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Pretty simple. This is how God's great mercy impacts us. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living, enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field, the grass that withers and falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, Jesus told a parable of the word going out and being cast. And he talks about the four different types of hearts the word that would land on. One is like a path where it's impenetrable and the birds of the air come down and take it away. The enemy just steals it right out of your heart. Another one was a hard, rocky surface, but it got in there and had a little root 
and it came up, and that represents the heart that receives the word of God with joy. They say, oh yeah, Lord, I love you, this is great, and all that stuff, but when persecution and hardship came because of the gospel, they just went ahead and withered and died. The sun came out. And then there's the third that that landed on thorny ground. The word of God got cast on hearts that were thorny. The cares and the, the, the desire for riches, the cares of this world, the busyness of life choked out the fruit. The intention of, the, of a seed going into the ground is not to sit there in the ground. What do you want it to do? Produce. Then there's the fourth kind, the good ground, that received it, And those are those who heard the word, accepted it, understood it, and it began to do something in their life. It changed them. It grew. It changed them. They became, they were born again. It was evidence, and they had fruit in their life. It says some, you know, different folds of fruit were coming out in these people's lives. And Peter says to his readers, and to those who believe, you have born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. We're all like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. He says in verse 24, the the grass that withers and the flower falls. Listen this morning. Mankind, we have our glory moment. Our our skin is, is good, and our bodies do what they're supposed to. And like something that comes up and has its beauty for a day, it soon withers and begins to die. That's because that is perishable seed. You've all been born of perishable seed. But what does Peter say? He says, you have been born from the word of God, imperishable seed. In other words, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man, guess what's happening? It's doing the opposite. It's been renewed day by day, and it will culminate not in death, but in eternal life, in a body that fits at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you received the eternal word of God into your heart? You're perishing. And you will die, and you will face the judgment of God, and he will send you off into all eternity, into a hell. Apart from his great mercy, that great mercy came through his son, Jesus Christ. He made the way of escape 2,000 years ago, that if you believe that he died in your place and he rose again, God would give you eternal life. That is by faith. It is unearned. It is given to you by God's goodwill towards you, his love towards you. It is by grace, and that is the seed. It has been cast this morning into your hearts. It's been cast in other ways. And may God give you the grace to respond to it and receive eternal life that you may live that obedient and holy life marked by a supernatural love for God and one another. May the Lord do that in your heart this morning. If that's, that's you, respond. We'll pray for you. Respond to the Lord Jesus. Come up and talk to me. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word you've given us. Lord, we know that we have been born of this wretched, destructive, defective seed, Lord. (laughs) But we want to thank you and praise you that you came into our life. And like the wind, you just came in and you breathed your life into our hearts. And if there's someone here this morning who's never given their heart to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to put your hand up now and we will pray for you. And we will just pray for you that you would receive the Lord.
not going to make you come up here. It's between you and the Lord. Let the Lord have that sit on your heart. For those of us who've heard this word this morning, who have kind of lost our focus on the return of Jesus, will you pray with me? Lord God, we love you. And we just, we get our eyes off of you so easily, Lord. Spirit, we, we know that you've spoken this morning in areas of our lives that you've called us to be holy in, and, and we just want to anticipate the goodness that will come through our, through our obedience, Lord, to you. And so, Lord, take away those things uh, that would, you know, that are tripping us up and keeping us unfocused on you and set our hope back on your return, Lord God. Produce that obedience in us again and that holiness. And Lord, let the love just flow to one another, obviously to you. Lord Jesus, operate in your church, God. Have your way. We love you, and we thank you. We worship you. We praise you. You are so good and mighty and holy, and and all your promises are sure, and amen. You're going to come and get us, and we can't wait for all that, Lord. It's going to be sweet. In the here and now, Lord, we, we want to walk in your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.